hotel, uh, and you ride up to the top, and it just drops you uh, like three or four times, and it's randomized every time, so you don't know when it's going to do it, and uh, it's based on like the old Twilight Zone stuff. Pretty, pretty scary stuff for a kid uh, in terms of just you know going up and then dropping, especially my oldest son who's a fear of heights. But we told them we've paid a lot of money to be here, and you're going to ride everything. So. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly what we told them, and they did it. And you know how it goes, right? You, you break the seal. You get through that first thing, you know, the first big roller coaster or whatever, and then they just, then it can't get scary enough, right? They're like, oh, that wasn't as, you know, that, that was too slow or whatever. So it was great to watch them overcome their fears. Uh, what, are, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? One thing I love to do at the end of every year is kind of go back and see some, some uh, statistics for the year that we have just lived. Uh, and I was looking to see what have Americans been afraid of in the last 12 months. So here are the top 10 fears of Americans, according to the internet, in 2021. I'm going to count down from the smallest to the biggest. Uh, biological warfare, pollution, cyber terrorism, uh, economic collapse, Another pandemic, civil unrest, uh, people we love becoming ill, people we love getting COVID, people we love dying, and then number one, okay, and maybe this is an amazing commentary on the state of our trust in government at this point, but number one over all of those things, the number one fear of Americans in 2021 was corrupt politicians. All right, we're more fearful of corrupt politicians as a nation than COVID, riots, uh, a new pandemic, or biological warfare for that matter. Um, whether or not we should really fear these things is a topic for another day, but how do you shed this fear? When your flesh is telling you uh, that you are scared, what does your flesh tell you is the solution for your fear? Well, very often the solution that your flesh gives you, right, is more security. The more secure you feel, the less you're going to be afraid. So I mentioned my son is a little uh, frightened about heights and uh, whenever we would get on a ride, he would look at me and say, is this tight enough? Is this the way it's supposed to be, right? Because the more security he had, the less he was afraid. And, you know, this works out practically in our lives. The more assets you have, the less you are going to be afraid of economic collapse. The more uh, precautions that you take when it comes to the pandemic, uh, the more you're going to feel like, well, I won't get COVID. Uh, if you change all your passwords every month for all of your sign-in information online, then maybe you'll feel like nobody is going to be able to steal your credit card information, right? More security equals less fear. Well, some of those actions might be prudent, but what I want to argue this morning from the Scriptures is that the real repellent to fear is not security, I don't think that's what we see the Lord telling us, that the real repellent to fear is joy. And that's what we'll see in this passage. We're halfway through our Advent uh, season. We have looked at hope in Isaiah. Pastor David preached about love last week. And today we dive into joy. And to do it, we go to Bethlehem. We go to the place of Jesus' birth. Bethlehem was about six miles directly south of Jerusalem. It really is not a city. Uh, it was not a city at the time. It was more of a small village. And Jesus was born there in obscurity. 
Caesar Augustus had decreed that a census would be taken in the entirety of the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people, being under the thumb of the Romans, had to comply with it. And, and someone, maybe Herod, the, the puppet king that Rome had set up over the Jewish people, uh, had required that in order for uh, the Jewish people to be registered for the census, they were going to have to go back to the house of their ancestry. Which meant that Joseph and Mary had to make about a 90-mile journey to Bethlehem because they were from the line of David, and Bethlehem was David's town. None of this was happenstance. None of this was coincidence. All of this was happening because God was sovereignly moving along the wheels of history to fulfill prophecies that had been made in his word in the Old Testament. In particular, a prophecy that Micah had made that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But just because God was the one moving the wheels of history along doesn't mean that any of this was easy for Mary or easy for Joseph. She was very pregnant. And since there was a census underway, Bethlehem would have been filled with people like Mary and Joseph who were trekking back to the house of their lineage in order to register. There also would have been a lot of Roman officials there taking up space in the town because they were overseeing the census, making sure that it was accomplished. And that means that available rooms would have been filled with a lot of travelers and a lot of soldiers. And that's why Mary and Joseph could not find a place to stay. We don't know exactly where Jesus was born. Some have said it was a stable because the feeding trough is mentioned here uh, in Luke 2 verse 7, which I'll read in just a moment. But it was likely worse than that. There were these overnight stopping places for weary travelers, and in those places you would have a courtyard surrounded by four walls. And built in the walls were little lean-to sheds with lofts above them. And often people would stay in the lofts and others would stay on the ground and the animals would then roam around in the courtyard. So it was kind of like the parking lot, right? You park your car at the hotel, you go up to your room, uh, you leave your beast of burden in the courtyard, you go to your loft, you go to your lean-to shed in one of the four walls. It's very possible that this is where Jesus is born. It's likely that even the little lean-to sheds are all filled, and that Mary gave birth to him in the courtyard, and then they laid him in one of the troughs that the animals would have been eating from. And so, yes, that's why we can say our Lord Jesus was born in obscurity. So how do you peel back obscurity and unveil the most important news in the history of the world? Well, you announce it. And that's exactly what God did in this passage this morning. He announced the birth of his son. The jewel, the treasure of heaven had come to earth. It was time to let all of humanity know, and that's what this text is about. So we're going to focus on verses 8 through 11, but I'm going to read all the way through 21 just to give us some context this morning. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened to us, uh, that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Father, this is not a fairy tale. This is not a story written up out of the figment of someone's um, imagination um, this is the reality. This is the history of how you saved the world. Uh, this is uh, the history of how you redeemed our souls. You have given us the greatest gift that the world has ever known, your son, Jesus. And I pray that this morning, uh, as we look at the circumstances surrounding his birth, and as we look at the birth announcement to the shepherds in the fields, uh, Father, I pray that we would be convicted to be a less fearful people and a more joyful people, and that we would pursue that, and that we would want to dive headlong into that as a result of this passage. So may your word do its work in our congregation, in our people, in folks watching on the live stream this morning. Be with us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to break this up into three parts this morning. Um, here's what we have. We have an unexpected audience. We have an expected response. And we have an unexpected message. We start with an unexpected audience. If I were to announce the birth of Jesus today, what would I do? What would you do? How would you announce his birth? Would you send out a birth announcement in the newspaper? Probably not, okay? Because a lot of people don't really read the newspaper anymore. A hundred years ago, that's exactly what you would have done. You would have sent out a birth announcement to the newspaper. But now that would not be your move. Uh, would you make a post on social media? Okay, now you're, we're, we're getting warmer, okay? That's more of a 2021 way to announce uh, a birth. But you would not ask someone like me, to make that announcement. I have about 600 followers on Instagram. I don't have a blue check mark, okay? So uh, I'm not verified. I'm not someone that you should uh, ask to do that. So who would you ask? Well, maybe Kim Kardashian, okay? She's got 263 million followers. That is, by the way, the population of Russia and Japan combined, okay? Follow her on social media. She is famous just for being famous. So this is someone who maybe you would go to and say, hey, can you announce this birth because we need it to get out to the whole world. So if you're a PR firm working for God the Father, that's your tactic, right? Let's get Kim Kardashian to announce the birth of Jesus or someone like her. But the Lord does not announce the birth of Christ to the first century version of Kim Kardashian. It's not a famous person. It's not announced to rich people. It's announced to shepherds who are keeping watch over their flock in a field. 
I'm not going to go too deep on shepherds here because back on November 7th we did a real deep dive on, on shepherds. Uh, so you can go back and you can listen to that. Uh, that's when we were studying Luke 15 and we were talking about uh, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and get the one. But I, I just want to reiterate the fact that they were outcasts from society. Okay, and They spent all their time out in the fields. They did not really have the ability because of their profession to go and attend the uh, Jewish festivals to observe the holy days, their professions uh, made them religious outcasts. They were boxed out of the religious culture. Most people saw them as untrustworthy. Most people saw them as somewhere just above a prostitute or a tax collector. So this is absolutely an unexpected audience for the birth announcement of Christ, at least in terms of the world. This is not the tactic that a PR firm would have taken. This is not the way to gain followers and become an influencer. This is not how uh, we in our human planning would expect to have uh, you know, the, the heralding of the news that the most important three decades of redemptive history is about to begin. And yet this is what God did. And while it's unexpected to the world, we should not be so surprised if we've read the Bible and that this is how God went about this. It's right in line with the pattern of how God works. God loves to elevate the unlikely. He loves to lift up the obscure. In fact, after Mary visits Elizabeth and they're both rejoicing in their improbable pregnancies, she praises God with a song, and here's what she says in it in Luke chapter 1. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And so God honors the humble. Paul teaches the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What we learn from the Word is that the Lord resists the proud and He gives grace to the humble and the lowly. And so, when the angels of heaven come announcing the birth of Christ, they come to some of the lowest workers in all of first century Jewish society. Shepherds. So, unexpected according to the world's wisdom, but pretty expected in biblical terms. This is how God loves to work. Why? Because it makes Him look glorious. If he has the most famous person announce the birth of Jesus, well then credit might go to that person. But when he uses the humble and when he uses the lowly, they become a magnifying glass for the greatness of God. The credit and the glory goes to the Lord and that is where it belongs. Because the humble and the lowly can only point to God's mercy and grace and are glad to point to God's mercy and grace for favoring them in this way. So we have an unexpected audience. Number two, we have an expected response. These men are filled with fear. Verse 9 says the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's enough to scare the tunic right off of me, all right? 
That, that's, pretty, that's pretty frightening stuff. You're in a dark field, okay? A dark field. There's, there's no spotlights. There's no flashlights, okay? It, it's a dark field. You're watching out for wolves and predators, and suddenly an angel of the Lord shows up. The Greek word for appeared literally means to stand beside. So you were there, you're watching out for wolves and predators, and suddenly an angel of the Lord is standing beside you. That is going to scare you. And if that's not enough, Luke says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. We don't have enough time for a real deep dive on the glory of the Lord this morning. That's a, a whole sermon. Um, maybe that's a whole semester, okay? But, but nobody interacts with the glory of the Lord lightly in the Scriptures. When Isaiah sees the train of God's robe fill the temple in Isaiah 6, he's so petrified that he pronounces a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people who have unclean lips. So he cries out, woe is me. When Ezekiel sees a vision of God's glory in Ezekiel 1, he falls down on his face. When Gabriel comes to Zechariah and then to Mary in Luke 1, both of them are fearful. When Peter and James and John see the glory of Christ in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, they fall down on their face in terror. And when John sees the glory of Christ in Revelation 1, here's what the Bible says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So there is nothing unexpected about the response of the shepherds as the angel appears and the glory of God shines around them. They're filled with great fear. The Greek word for great is megas. The Greek word for fear is phobeo. We get our word phobia from it. So this is like saying they are mega afraid. Okay, they're mega afraid. They probably thought they're about to die. Why would they think that? Why would they be afraid and think they're about to perish? Because they are sinful men in the presence of God's holiness and God's glory, and they are painfully aware of their own fallenness. They are painfully aware of the fact that they are finite and undeserving, and that they had no right to stand in the presence of God's glory as sinful men who really were not a part of the religious culture, no matter how badly they might have wanted to be. So this brings us to the unexpected message. Now, don't get too excited. I know a lot of you are like, man, he's already on point three. Point three has three subpoints. all right? So we're going to be here for a while. Three components here, all right? So we've got, we've got an unexpected audience. We have an expected response. And now, really, the meat of the text, an unexpected message in verses 10 and 11. And here's what we're going to see in this message. We're going to see the angel relieving their fear. And we're going to see the angel revealing good news. And we're going to see the angel giving reason for joy. And so let's look at these separately during the rest of our time together. We start with the angel relieving their fear. They thought they're going to die, but the angel says what? Fear not. Now Jesus is going to come a second time. This is the first advent. There's going to be a second and when he comes the second time, here's how Revelation 19 describes it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When he comes again, it's a time for fear if you do not know him. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to make war against sin one final time. He's going to cast evil and evildoers into hell for just punishment. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If not for the text we have in front of us, that would be terrifying to even read about. But if you receive the Lord in His first advent then there's no fear of the second. There's no need to be afraid of the second. This was not a time for the shepherds to fear the impending judgment of God. This was a time for these unlikely hearers to be recipients of a message of grace. They're getting news about undeserved love from God being poured out on human beings. Grace that saves from judgment. Grace that saves from death. The angel has not come with news of doom. He has come with good news of great joy for all the people. Which brings us to the second component of their message. The angel reveals good news to the shepherds in verse 10. Good news of great joy for all the people. It's like the angel is saying to them, okay, gentlemen, it's all right. Lift your eyes up. Don't be afraid. There's nothing but good news coming from me to you tonight. This is not news of judgment. This is not news of punishment. This is not news about a curse. This is not news about a grave. This is good news. This is news that God is a Savior. This is news that God has sent someone to forgive sin and to remove shame and to remove guilt. This is news that should bring about the opposite of great fear. It should bring about great joy. The Greek word for great is the same one we saw connected to fear in verse 9, megas. The word for joy in Greek, kara. So here's what is happening. Their mega fear is being replaced by mega joy. This is what the good news is doing. Mega fear is being replaced by mega joy. Now, this word joy that we've lit the candle for this morning and that we're talking about this morning, and that is our theme for Advent this week, what is it? Well, it's not happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is dictated by circumstances and by time joy is different joy is a delight in the lord and not just in the lord but in the life that he has given us joy transcends pleasure it's it's above and beyond pleasure and joy runs deeper than pain and suffering 
So often in the Old Testament, joy was connected to God's acts of salvation and God's acts of preservation and rescue. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. He gives refuge, we rejoice. We sing for joy as he spreads his protection over us. Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Isaiah 35, verse 10, In the ransomed of the Lord, the people who have been rescued, ransomed, bought back by the Lord, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And we see the same idea in the New Testament when Peter writes, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. And so joy is connected in the Bible to God's acts of salvation on behalf of his people. And this is the reason for joy in the shepherd's field. God has sent a Savior. Therefore, it's time to rejoice. There's reason for great joy. And it's a joy for all the people. Now, all the people is probably a reference to all the Jewish people. Okay, after all, salvation comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But if you go a few verses on to Luke 2 verse 31, where Simeon is holding Jesus in the temple, listen to what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, and for glory to your people Israel. So while all the people here as the angel speaks might be directed at the Jewish people, we know where this is leading. The salvation that brings great joy is not going to stay in Jerusalem and it's not going to stay in Judea, and it's going to break through to Samaria, and it's going to go all the way to the end of the earth. It's going to go to the nations. The mega fear of the nations is to be replaced with the mega joy of knowing Christ as God gives light to the Gentiles as well as his people Israel. And the person responsible for the mega joy is Christ the Lord, and we see this in verse 11. For unto you, the Messiah who is the Lord has been born unto us. He's a Savior born in the city of David, just as the Scripture foretold. Jesus, the child born in Bethlehem, is the person of good news. He's the person of good news. He is at the center of the news. It's about Him. 
The title Christ means anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. And what that title does is it gives Jesus an office. From the very beginning of his earthly life, he held an office. He's the foretold Messiah who will be king over Israel. He is the foretold Messiah who will be a high priest for the people. The foretold Messiah who will be the final prophet heralding the word of God and preaching the message of the kingdom. And he is Christ the Lord. Kurios is the Greek word that the angel uses, and it means that he's not simply Lord over a piece of land or a certain family. He is Lord with valid, ultimate authority over the entire world. That is who the Messiah is. Jesus is the anointed one who is Lord over all of the earth. The true God who possesses all control. Lest there be any mistaking, the angel is saying to the shepherds that this is the child of Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's tie all of this together. We talked about all those fears that Americans have, right? And we've talked about the fear of the shepherds in the field as men who knew they were not worthy to be in the presence of the glory of a holy God. Well, how do you go from mega fear to mega joy? Doesn't everybody want that deep down? Deep down, doesn't everyone want to go from mega fear to mega joy. I think that's part of what Christmas is. I think what you see uh, as, as the whole world embraces this season, isn't that amazing? One of the things this week when we were at Disney that kind of blew my mind was the fact that, you know, all around you is the Disney machine, and it's a very, uh, it's a company that likes to stay in step with the movement of the culture. Let's just put it that way, Okay. And so, in light of that, they want to be politically correct in everything they do. And yet, the lead singer of Mercy Me, the Christian band, was there reading the Christmas story as this band and all of these, uh, this big choir was singing, O Holy Night, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and all the songs that we sing as believers, as the church, during the season, that was going on right in the middle of Epcot the last night we were there. And I thought, how, how out of step is this with the rest of this place? Why is this happening? Because during this time of the year, the whole world goes, we want mega joy. Even people that reject Christ, want nothing to do with church, they're like, yeah, I need the mega joy. This is a time of the year where I'll be a part of all this stuff. I I want one month of the year where I can lay down my arms and not be so concerned with all of the things that make me scared in the world and I can just be joyful. How do you go from mega fear to mega joy? How do you get the thing that everybody wants deep down? The answer is about as Sunday school as it gets. It's the answer, right? You go from mega fear to mega joy in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. When the wonderful counselor saves you, 
Here's what he does. He delivers you from the biggest problem that you're ever going to have. Which is the fact that one day you will die and you will face God in judgment. And apart from a saving act of God, you would perish in that judgment. Why? Because like me, you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. And if you don't believe that you're a sinner, all you got to do is just take God's Ten Commandments, the most basic rules that He has given us, and just ask yourself, have I followed these rules? Like, have I actually obeyed these rules? You won't get past the first one. Right? As you just go down the line, we're going to realize we have not loved God the way we're supposed to. We have not worshipped God the way that we are supposed to. We have not honored and respected His name in the way we are supposed to. We have not rested in Him the way that we are supposed to. We have not honored our father and mother the way we're supposed to. And you can just keep on going down the line. We are guilty according to His law. Therefore, we are deserving of His wrath. And whether you believe in Him or not, one day you will face Him in judgment. So what does God do? He sends Christ the Lord. He sends the Savior born in David's town who lives this perfect life and then dies for you at Calvary. He dies in your place. And the thing that we have to understand is that it should have been us. It should have been me. It should have been you on that cross. And He takes the punishment for our sin on His shoulders. So that it wouldn't fall on your shoulders. And then as the choir just sung a bit ago, he rises from the grave and he defeats death for you. And if you've repented of your sin and you have put your trust in him, then you're his. And you're not just his today, December 12th, 2021. You are his forever. In his possession, in his grip And one day you're going to die and you will be with him and you will never taste eternal death. So the biggest problem that you have in your life is the sin that created a deep divide between you and the Lord and the impending judgment that sin was going to bring on your soul. All the stuff that people are fearful of. All the people are all the things that people are scared of. It's secondary to falling into the hands of the living God and being judged. Your soul being judged with no mediator. All those things that we fear are secondary, way, 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 way down the list, not even close to falling into His hands and falling into His judgment. And He dealt with that in His first advent. He dealt with that in His first coming. Therefore, there is no need for the shepherds to be fearful. They are about to get news that there's a way back to God, even for lowly shepherds in the field. And so, here's what I want to say to you this morning. First of all, if you have allowed the fear of crooked politicians and cyber terrorism to supersede the fear of a holy God, your fear scale is all out of whack. If you spend most of your time thinking about how you can work to get somebody from your party elected, and that, that um, the amount of time you, you spend thinking about that is, is 
you know, way bigger than the amount of time you spend thinking about pursuing God, your fear scale is out of whack. If you spend your time walking around fearing the things of the, the earth over the one that rules over the earth, there's misunderstanding in your heart in terms of what you should be fearing. And if you do not know Christ, you have to wake up to the grave reality of facing God in judgment without Christ as your Savior. But if you're a believer this morning, and you spend your life in trepidation, I want you to understand you don't have to live that way. We do not have to live our lives in fear of the things of this earth. Fear the Lord. Have reverence for the Lord. Worship the Lord and rejoice that you can worship Him in spirit and in truth because Christ has made a way back to Him for you. The mega fears of this world suck the joy out of us. That's what they do. They steal our joy. They suck the joy out of us. They leave us trembling at the prospect of our phobias becoming realities. Of our phobias landing at our doorstep. It's what I said during this whole COVID thing. Wearing a mask, social distancing, prudent activity. Okay? Um, Many spent time staying away, saying, man, I've got to, I've got to make sure that I'm, you know, either I'm waiting for the vaccine or whatever. They, they waited for what they needed to have to be able to go out and, and for their doctors to say, all, all prudent activity. Nothing wrong with being wise, but you don't need to be fearful. You don't have to live in fear as a believer. COVID, climate change, crooked leaders, Satan wants to take these fears and wear you down into a terrified shell of yourself. And the more fearful you are, the less likely you are to step out in faith and to do the things the Lord calls us to do, like just inviting somebody to church. But the mega joy of knowing Jesus drives those fears away. Hell has been defeated. Why do I need to live in trepidation of a virus? Satan's fate has been sealed. Why am I going to lose sleep over politics? All evil will be eradicated and Christ's kingdom is forever. Don't let the temporary things of this world shake your perspective. The mega joy of being reconciled to God through His Son is better than any fleeting happiness this world can offer. And it runs deeper than any sorrow that it can inflict upon us. So we give Him praise that unto us He has been born. Father God, glory to You this morning for sending your son Jesus to us. It's so easy to succumb to the fears that, um, that are all around us. And we're being told every day to be scared. There's, there's always going to be a new variant. And there's always going to be a new crooked politician. And there's always going to be some new supposed existential threat that we need to shudder and and, and to tremble in front of. Fears aren't going anywhere. Phobias aren't going anywhere. 
And some of us this morning, Lord, are mega afraid. And you know that. You know where their hearts are. You know where my heart is this morning. And I pray, God, that your word has convinced us and will continue to convince us that we do not need to fear man and we do not need to fear um, the created things of this world. That we need to live in reverence, with reverence before you. And that the only one we need to fear sent his son to die in our place, to redeem us from sin, to give us eternal life, and has given us joy. So let mega joy, Lord, be the theme of our hearts this Christmas as believers. And I pray that we would take this great news that has given us this mega joy and that we would spread it around to everyone that we can come in contact with. That we would tell as many people as we can, especially this time of the year where they set up an orchestra to play O Holy Night in the middle of the Disney park. This is the time. This is the time to tell people. Hearts are open. They don't want to be afraid. We've got the answer. So let us revel in the, the mega joy you've given us and give glory to you. And then, Father, I pray that as your workmanship, we would spread it to others and that we would tell them that the answer to all their fears is the Lord who was born to us. We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. And we want to praise him again right now with our voices in song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.